You've probably heard of Tom Bilyeu as the host of The Impact Theory, which is one of the biggest podcasts and YouTube channels out there in the whole wide world. He's also the co-founder of the billion dollar brand, Quest Nutrition. In this podcast, we get into a bunch of stuff regarding motivation, how to build yourself up, build your brand up, build your life up, and just live better. This podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything by Higher Dose. Higherdose.com promo code AMP75 to save $75 at checkout and by JustWorks. JustWorks.com. The beautiful thing about talking to a podcaster of Tom Bilyeu's caliber is not only does he have the wealth of information from his life lived, the businesses that he's created, the platform that he has built, but he also has all of the information from all of the guests that he's been interviewing, which are some of the most interesting and high-performance individuals in the world. But what was really exciting for me was to dive deep into the motivation. What makes Tom Bilyeu want to serve his audience and serve the world in the most powerful way and you'll get to hear some insight into that as well as romance as well as all things pertaining to life this is a great well-rounded conversation and i can't wait to share it with you but before we get started a word from our sponsors first up we have on it a lot of people think that on it started with alpha brain and in a lot of ways it did that was the first product that carried the flag of what on it was going to become but there was another formula that actually started a little bit before that and that was the base formula behind New Mood. The idea was that if you've been stressing yourself out, whether that's your partying or through working or through doing something that's more than you should and not sleeping enough, like myself and many of us, you're going to want to help balance your serotonin in your body. That's the neurotransmitter that's responsible for a lot of the aspects of mood and just how good you feel when you wake up and go through the rest of the day. You're also going to want to relax yourself and actually take off some of that load. There's so many ways that you can get yourself up. Alpha brain being one of them. That's going to support acetylcholine in your brain, which is going to help with mental focus and clarity and memory. But really, most of us have the hardest time relaxing and getting down because you can always drink some coffee and you can do some things to get yourself a little bit more focused. But now that's not going to be the same as alpha brain, but at least you can get kind of there. But what can you do to relax? What do you do to restore yourself as you sleep? And that was one of the first needs that I saw, and that was the basis of the New Mood formula. It has L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, which helps support the serotonin and melatonin systems in the body. Then it has a host of other different herbs and nutrients that are really going to help support you in relaxing and calming yourself so you can, ah, chill. So if you haven't tried it yet, please check it out. It's one of our best formulas. And it's something that I take regularly, if not every single night. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, save yourself some money, and check out the new mood. Next up, we have Just Works. Now, when I was starting on it, there wasn't anything like Just Works. So I had to figure a bunch of stuff out. I mean, I ran a small boutique marketing agency, but it was basically me and a couple contractors that were working together. But on it was a different beast. And every step of the way, every time we would grow, we would have to solve problems ourselves. Just Works solves a lot of those problems 
helping you manage remote employees, onboarding these employees, talking about employment and tax regulations and requirements that are difficult to understand on your own. You can get national health insurance plans for your employees. You can save a lot of hours on tracking all the things that sync with payroll, and you get access to 24-7 support. This would have been such a savior for me back in the early days, back in 2011, 2012, 2013. So if you're starting a business now, no need to struggle with all this. Focus on what you can do to make your business awesome. Focus on what you're a specialist at. And probably you're not a specialist at any of these things that I just mentioned, but JustWorks is. So check it out. Go to JustWorks.com for more info. Once again, that's JustWorks.com for more info. And lastly, we have Higher Dose. Now, Higher Dose has some pretty incredible tech that they're making available for home use. So they have basically a pad that you can lay out, lay out on the ground like it is in my living room, or lay it out on a massage table or lay it out on a bed. And in this pad, this pad that is layered with different crystals, different structures, that pushes both infrared and pulse electromagnetic field through the pad. Now, this is something that if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean much to you. But let me just tell you what it feels like when you're on there. It feels kind of warm and it feels kind of relaxing at first. But the longer you stay on it, the more you start to feel this lightness and this euphoria and this deep relaxation come over you. And it's something that you might not notice right away. But as you lie there, as you allow the infrared and you allow the pulse electromagnetic field to work, you'll start to feel significant changes. Great for meditation practice, great for taking those midday naps, great for a journey if you want to go on a journey on the mat. There's also a lot of benefits to both infrared and the PEMF. So I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to higherdose.com, use the promo code AMP75 to save $75. And really though, this is something that's worth trying if you're able to. Higherdose.com, promo code AMP75 to save $75 off. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Tom Bilyeu. Tom. What's up, dude? It's good to see you, brother. It is very good to see you, my friend. Yeah, man. I'm excited to talk to you today because there's two things that I think people probably care about as much or more than anything else love and money and there's a lot of ideas that we have about love and money that i think are a little bit skewed by our cultural conditioning maybe our own genesis of these thoughts themselves what Mm -hmm. we've seen in the world but really when you start to go deeper in you start to see for yourself start to learn lessons and these are two things that you know a lot about you've been on this journey (laughs) you've been on this journey in earnest today is the day of your 19th year wedding anniversary, yes. which is beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. It's crazy. So let's, uh, we'll start, we'll start by talking about, because it started even earlier for you, which was this drive to earn, the drive to make money. I mean, as you were growing up, this was part of your mythos was, I'm gonna make some money. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the word mythos because that is, Right. So I didn't understand what money was, but it very much had a, like the sort of grandeur in my mind of like a, a great myth of the rags to riches story. And 
you know, growing up, I wasn't poor. I used to think I was, if I'm honest, until mm -hmm. I saw real poverty, and then I realized, okay, I was not poor. <laughs> um, but I wasn't able to get the things that I wanted, all the things. And I wasn't like a spoiled brat about it or anything. It just, it really gave me this excitement, quite frankly, that I could become rich. And that was thrilling and is still a gift like I wish I could give to other people that belief that you can become something different. And so yeah. as a kid, you know, a child of the 80s, growing up in Tacoma, Washington, basically bordering on rural, my dad sort of teetered between white collar and blue collar. And I had to work every summer since I was 12 years old. My parents refused to buy me a Nintendo. I had to buy it myself. I took a job in a door factory at 12 in order to buy my own Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it, like I'm actually really glad because it made me angry when I was a kid. Mm. And then you start thinking, well, I'm gonna get rich and I'm gonna be able to get whatever I want. And because it didn't become a dark energy for me, it was just exciting, this thought that, oh my God, like I can go be rich. So I used to tell people all the time, I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be rich. And it's so funny because my cousin, who I was actually relatively close with, she's quite a bit older than me, but relatively close with when I was growing up, only just found out that I ended up actually becoming rich. <laughs> and so she was like, wait a second like and she just kept asking my mom this is the same kid like that yeah. was lazy that was you know unfocused that was hyper and she was like that kid now is wealthy and she was just like happy but almost couldn't believe it and uh -huh. it was such a powerful reminder of everyone used to make fun of me because i was like the only person in my family that was like no no, no i'm gonna be rich what do you mean and uh it just nobody else allowed themselves to dream like that that's uh that's interesting to trace it back to this early belief, you know, and, and you can almost not take entirely the credit for that, that part, but you can also instill the wisdom of that, like, because that kind of came to you in some ways, you know. Dude, I, I am really unnerved by the things I don't feel that I earned. Right. And there are insights in my life that I don't, I'm like, I don't know why I had that insight and it's ended up serving me so well. Yeah. So yeah, part of, why I get in front of the camera is what if I had never had that insight or met that person that said that thing at that moment? <laughs> and so it's like, I'm just trying to pump as many like, right. hey, to I learned be all that this the hard way. For yes. somebody else, yes. for someone else to say, no, no, I, I can be rich too. This gave me permission. I saw it. I felt his energy. I believe him and I can do the same thing. You know, that's 100%. sometimes all it takes. For sure. You know, what's interesting is my story for my story for what drove me to be successful was actually tied in, and I'm, we're not finished with money by any stretch, but it actually ties into love because as much as you know, my family was actually quite wealthy, and so I was used to wealth in that, in that category, and I always believed that that was probably my own destiny. I certainly wanted to carve my own path to do it, but for me, I recognized it was very much like the Scarface mythos. Like it was, first you get the money, then you get the power, and then you get the women. Mm. And I, because I was really a frustrated lover, you know, I would love, I would love a girl so much. Of course, this is childish love, juvenile love, but I would think that I was in love. I, was, I love you, I'd write them love poetry, I'd fashion <laughs> them little gifts or whatever I would do. And they'd be like, oh, whoa, too much. Yeah. And I'd be like, why, but why? And then it, it built this kind of, this almost sacred rage of like, okay, well, you just wait, 
one day I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have everything. I'm going to be the most physically fit. I'm going to be the most mentally fit, emotionally fit, financially fit. I'm going to be the type of person that you're not going to say no to because it's just going to, I'm going to be the best of us. And it was actually, that was for me, that same thing that kind of, that I hear in you from a, for a different reason of there's this, this kind of fire, this fire to be the best. But for me, it was kind of universal. Finances were just one of it, but it really drove me to be, all right, why is total human optimization? Well, part of it was this chase of like, I have to be the very best. So when I really love that girl, she won't say no to me. Mm. Now, of course, love is a lot more nuanced than this very simplistic, childish view. But there's but something interesting in that to me that that gave you that initial push. How I do you did. think about that now? Was, is that a dark energy to you that you're glad that you got rid of? Or do you see it as something that really helped you? I see it as an ally. It's, it's kind of like a dirty fuel source, but the only engine, if the only engine you have on the boat is a coal engine, use coal. Right. Like shovel coal, it's fine. Eventually you can switch to solar power or wind yeah, my power. My thing is I don't understand why people rule out things that are um, painful or what I'll call a dark energy. And I mean that sort of in the Star Wars mm-hmm. way. Um, evolution gave us a lot of tools. And I feel like in a modern context, people are trying to get rid of a lot of the tools. And I'm like, but they work. And if you spend too much time in the darkness, it becomes corrosive, so don't. Yep. But if, you, if that's what got you moving in the beginning, then there's something really powerful in that. Now, so many people start on a path and they just keep going down that and they don't have the kind of realizations that you've had so that it, it can switch over to solar, to use your analogy. Mm-hmm. But it's so powerful to want to be sexually attractive. It's so powerful to want to be powerful. The number of people that get bullied and then rebound so hard because it's like never again, right? I'm never Mm -hmm. gonna be looked down on or abused. Like I'm gonna take control. Now look, it breaks most of the people that it touches and is therefore a tragedy. But leveraging that to say, I won't have that again in my life is super powerful. Yeah. So it, I like the sacred rage. I like that. Yeah. It's interesting because now, obviously, I'm with the woman of my dreams. Like it, and I don't think it required me, you know, getting, get, accumulating all of these different levels mm. of mastery. But certainly, it didn't hurt that I was so, you know, that I accomplished as much as I did in my life in such a well-rounded perspective. But nonetheless, like, however it happened, I think there was a lot, as I said, a lot more to it than just putting up statistics and saying, did you meet the criteria? I think we are a perfect match for each other. But ultimately... Well, so sticking on that point for a second, I think that my gut instinct is none of the metrics of success are what attracted her. But my obsession is getting people to understand this. Winning a championship is irrelevant. Becoming capable of a championship performance Mm -hmm. matters a lot. And so becoming the kind of person that was able to achieve these things matters. Getting emotional mastery, the confidence to run a business, showing that you learn in sort of an iterative process and what that does to the mind in terms of humbling you and yet giving you a lot of skills. That's the kind of thing that people are attracted to. So yes, I agree that you didn't need to earn the money or whatever, but you probably had to go through that kind of crucible to gain those skills, the insights, the mentality, which of course is ultimately what drew her to you. Yeah, that was the forge that made the blade of who I am, that, that honed the sword of my spirit, right. you know, in, in an important way to be able to actually, you know, withstand the heat of a 
birthing, blinding star like Vailana, right? Like I had to forge myself to be able to hold that and say, shine, baby, shine. <laughs> however hot you want to go, however, like burn up a million galaxies and I'm going to be there and hold you. And, and I think that's what made us such a match. So it wasn't the actual things, but it was the process. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, very, you know, perfectly said on your part that you, you kind of identified that. But yeah, I mean this, uh, so, but now that I have, I, I'm with her, that fuel source, you know, that, that idea that I have to keep driving myself to get the woman of my dreams. Mm. Okay, got the woman of my dreams. It is now denied me. That coal, the coal engine is, is like, it's, it's out. There's no more coal that I can feed in the engine of, now I gotta be better because somewhere out there is that woman. And when I meet her, I wanna be ready. Well, I, I met her and we're together. And, and of course, we were, we're growing together. But the coal engine is out of service. It doesn't work anymore. And there, if I'm being honest, I miss it because that was a fuel source. Now, it wasn't a fuel source that was meant to carry me my whole life. Yeah. However, finding motivation in the world, in the place beyond that fuel source, I miss sometimes some of that dirty coal energy that was driving me forward. And so I guess I would push this back to you, you know, now that you've achieved, you've quenched your own, you know, your own sacred rage, your own desire and your own belief in what required you to get to where you're at. What is it now that you've replaced? What is your solar energy that's actually driving you forward? You know, it's interesting. So I got very lucky in that my dreams did not come true when I thought they would. So I graduate film school, feel totally lost, and going through like a really gnarly dark period in my life. I meet these two very successful entrepreneurs. They say, look, dude, you come into the world with your hand out. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources because I wanted to you know, build the studio that I'm building now. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 that makes a lot of sense. And so I thought it would take 18 months and we were going to build a company together and get rich and it was going to be amazing. And then I was going to start my studio. <laughs> and 18 months turned into six and a half years, turned into eight years. My wife finally pulled me aside and said, look, your obsession with getting rich is now damaging the marriage. And I was so obsessed and I was building a company I didn't care about. And I was working my ass off constantly around the clock. And it was all that dark energy. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, I'm going to get rich. There was no sort of meaning or purpose behind it. Even now, the studio has a why. Back then it didn't. I just love movies. Mm. And so I love movies. I want to make movies. I want to get rich so I can be rich. And, you know, so it was just like money, 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 money. And every day going into work, I just felt like my life force was being sucked away. And I remember once Lisa like finally said, hey, like this isn't fun anymore. You hate what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. There's a dark cloud over you when you come home you come home and just work more. Like, we're not connected anymore. You've said that your number one priority is this marriage. It's time to prove it. And so I was like, whoa, that's a wake-up call. Like, you, it happened so slowly, I didn't realize how profoundly unhappy Mm. I had been chasing money. And so I go in and I quit. And I said, look, I need to feel alive. Lisa and I were going to move to Greece. I was going to get back to writing screenplays, and that was going to be that. And then I'll build my wealth that way. And keep in mind, I have promised my father-in-law, who did not want me to marry his daughter, I'm going to make your daughter a wealthy woman. <laughs> He's been waiting for you know eight, eight and a half years. <laughs> I've got her clipping coupons. Like, I mean, it's there's a lot in this moment of like, I had 
on paper, I was worth about $2 million at the time. Now, as you well know, paper money does not spend. You can't, yeah. it's not cash paper money. It's like theoretical <laughs> entry point in a database somewhere, you know, paper money. And so on paper, I'm quote unquote wealthy, but the, experientially I'm not. And so I go in and I give this equity back and I'm like, I just need to feel alive. So like whatever, like if money is, you know, the metaphorical devil that's tempting me, I spend my eight years instead of 40 days in the desert. But I have that moment, like if you've seen Lord of the Rings, when the Kate Blanchett character gets the ring and she sees how powerful she could become, mm-hmm. and then she gives the ring back and she's like, I've been tested and now I know who I am. And I was like, in this moment, I have been tested. I'm giving this money back Mm -hmm. to go feel alive. And now what I know about myself, I will never again do something that doesn't make me feel alive. If I'm willing to give back $2 million and say, I'm just gonna go live in a shack on a beach somewhere in Greece in some tiny ass town so I can write because that makes me feel alive, then you can't tempt me with money anymore. Right. And so it ends up being this hugely cathartic moment. Now I'm driving home, baby, I did it. We're fucking moving to Greece. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna be that <laughs> husband again. We're gonna connect uh-huh. emotionally. I'm gonna be alive. This is gonna be amazing. I am pulling in the driveway and they call me and they're like, you took us by surprise. Come out to dinner with us. Like, let's just talk about this. And so they were like, we actually feel the same. And so what would it look like for us to keep working together? We all lay it out. It's gotta be about passion. It's gotta be connecting. And I said, look, we have to change the question from what would I do if I knew I couldn't fail which is a question we used to ask each other. Two, what would I do and love every day, even if I'm failing? Because now I know the struggle is guaranteed, but the success isn't. And so that's when I began to get obsessed with this idea of, I may not actually win a championship, even if I become capable of a championship performance. Like think of all the Hall of Famers, that they just, it just didn't click. It didn't happen, the right team at the right time, whatever, but they still had this incredible career. But for whatever reason, They just don't have the ring to show for it. But that's still an incredible life, an incredible career. And so I thought, I'm gonna focus on that. I'm gonna become great at what I do. And I'm gonna be passionate about what I do. And I'm gonna try to add value to people's lives. Now, saying that today in 2021 is like, motherfucker, everybody says that. (laughs) This is back in like 2007, 2008. Nobody is talking like that. And so I give my partners this whole pitch about this thing that we now call social media that didn't have a name back then. And I was just like, dude, this is about that Kevin Kelly notion of a thousand true fans. Let's just add a lot of value to these people. Let me be who I really am. We'd now say authentic. And like, I wanna connect, build, we would now call it community. So I'm saying all Mm -hmm. these things that are now sort of de rigueur, everybody does it, but it was super novel. And so now I just show up every day and I'm like, I'm gonna love what I do. I'm gonna add value to people's lives. I'm gonna think about my mom and my sister. It becomes a mission-based thing for me. It's about ending metabolic disease. Now it's like, okay, this isn't about money anymore. And now I felt alive. And so at 2 a.m. on a Friday, as you know, when you're building a business, it's ridiculous hours. Sure. Doing a lot of dumb shit that you wish you weren't doing. One time, actually, 2 a.m. on a Friday, I was beneath a piece of equipment, fixing it, bloody knuckles, trying to like get the thing repaired. I hated working with my hands as a kid, hated it. Would never do it with my dad, all this. But now to serve my mom and my sister, right, who are morbidly obese, and to help them by making a food that they could choose based on taste, and it happened to be good for them, that's what I was focused on when I was there with my bloody knuckles under the piece of equipment at 2 a.m. on a Friday trying to fix it. it. Wasn't about money anymore. And I was like, I can't believe this works. I cannot believe that simply by saying, 
you, money actually can't buy happiness, like meaning and purpose, that mm -hmm. matters. So now imagine, I don't know that it's gonna become Quest Nutrition, like as it echoes, you know, the unicorn billion dollar company. I'm just thinking about my mom and my sister. I'm all alone in a warehouse in fucking Compton. Like none of what becomes the dream is that moment. This yeah. was just about meaning and purpose. And so now I'm like, this worked. Chasing money made me feel dead inside meaning and purpose, showing up for my mom and my sister, this is rad. And I refuse to lose. And like, I feel like a warrior now. And so now as like the money happens and I end up getting tremendously wealthy and it all works and we exit the company and we get the championship ring and all that, I'm like, thank God I understood that money wasn't gonna change anything. It was all about the meaning and purpose. Yeah. So now, and I remember the day that literally I go from a normal bank account because you know, in a business, you're just getting your salary like anybody else. You don't have that wealth moment until you sell a piece sure. or all of the company. So I go from, I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars on paper, but I'm still driving a beat up Ford Focus with a leaky exhaust, <laughs> right? So, but now it's like refresh, refresh, refresh on my banking app and boom, all of a sudden that there's hits. a lot of commas and zeros. And so I'm like, oh my God, I don't feel any differently about myself at all. And so I, all the insecurities that I had when I was poor, I still have. And all the pride in who I am becoming was before the money hit. Right. So the money didn't change anything. It was a great confirmation that essentially it doesn't matter. Money's powerful. It's actually more powerful, as you well know, than people think. It just isn't what they've been told. So the money can't affect your sense of self, can't affect your insecurities. It won't make you proud of yourself and won't make you feel good, but it lets you build, it lets you create. So I'm like, okay, well now I'm fantastically wealthy. I know that meaning and purpose is all that matters. So retiring now wouldn't make any sense. So now I need to answer the question, which by this point I was very confident in, can you point your meaning and purpose at something new? So if my meaning and purpose was my mom and my sister and metabolic disease, now that I've exited that, can I point that at something else and be as hungry, as on fire for that thing? And the answer is yes, but it's a process. So I don't know how much you want to go into the process, well, but I think it's what a I'd like, where I'd like to pause for a moment is the advantage of, so for people who don't know, Quest Nutrition focused on nutritional products, foods that actually helped with metabolic conditions because it was you know, low carb, and you were one of the first real big significant players that was putting out things that didn't have a bunch of sugar and didn't have a bunch of carbohydrate and still tasted good and, and was really supporting people who were actually like your mom and your sister. But you had this crystalline vision of two human beings that you loved, right? Your mom and your sister. So when you, you know, went from that media company into this, into Quest Nutrition, we're like, all right, we're going all in with this. And you had that image, it's almost like, that motivation, it's like what a, you see a soldier out there in the field and they can pull out their little thing and it's their sweetheart and it's like, this is why I'm coming home, you know, and they put it back in and then they charge back forward and go through. That's a really, it's a very clear understanding of what the motivation is. And then, so you've built Quest and I'm sure you've supported your mom and your sister in many different ways. And I'm sure, you know, potentially that's still a big part of your mission in, in whatever it is. but impact theory and what you've built subsequently, it's for the world. And the world is kind of, it's sometimes names and faces pop up, they flare up for a moment, but it's a lot more nondescript, it's a lot more ephemeral. It's like, I'm helping the world. 
other moms and other sisters and other brothers and other fathers. Anchor it. Yeah. So that's the, that's my question. Like, how do you go from something that's very anchored to something that's very like, okay, it's, I'm helping the world, but it's hard to connect with something like the world rather than a person. No, I had to anchor it on, on people. Right. So the process was recognizing, okay, it's that intimate connection. The, the quote is often attributed to Mother Teresa, whether it's apocryphal that she said it or not, I don't know. But the quote goes, no one will act for the many, but people will act for the one. And it's mm. the same sort of idea of a million deaths is a statistic, one death is a tragedy. And so helping a million people or a billion people or whatever, like that doesn't, um, it doesn't anchor me emotionally. But the idea of, so I used to big brother for this kid. And this started when I was 18. I was just doing it for extra credit in college. Long story why, but I felt a desperate need to get good grades. And they offered extra credit to go basically mentor in the inner cities because I went to USC, which is in the ghetto. Mm -hmm. And once you go 10 feet off of campus, you're in one of the worst neighborhoods in, in America and certainly in Southern California. And so they put me in one of the worst schools and one of the worst school districts to help one of the worst problematic kids. And... This kid's a, a just, he's just freaking out. And I don't know what to do, I'm 18. And he's fucking going haywire, going crazy. And they tell you at week six, you're supposed to tell them, hey, I'm only coming for two more weeks. This is an eight week program. So I say, hey, I'm only coming for two more weeks. And when I say an already problematic child went nuclear, it was crazy. I've never seen a human meltdown like that. He's he walks up, so tiny, he was on uh, Ritalin or something, so it was stunting his growth, very small. And he walks up to this kid that's like twice his size, socks him in the stomach. So imagine, we're sitting at a table, he just gets up, runs off, punches this big kid in the gut, kid goes down, I'm like, what is happening? Whoa. And so I finally, I'm like calming him down, I get him to sit back down, and I'm like, is this because I said I was only coming for two more weeks? And he finally calms down enough and he says yes. I say, all right, listen. The way he was doing things is he would throw a fit for the first hour, and then when I said I would have to leave, he would beg me to stay. So I'd end up staying for two hours. So finally I said, look, if you'll do your homework the second I get here, so I only stay for an hour, as long as I live in Los Angeles, I will mentor you, fair? And he was like, yes. And so what was supposed to be eight weeks turns into eight years, comes out, he was being abused at home, I didn't realize, I become the guardian, the ward of the court that helped him into foster care, like, the whole, like that's how embedded into this wow. kid's life I become, over eight years. And I didn't save him from his zip code. And the reason I don't say his name anymore, is I don't wanna, I don't want people looking him up or whatever, he, he has not yet thrived, though I remain optimistic and would love to get back into contact with him, so hopefully mm -hmm. he will see one of these videos and reach out. Um, I've tried to track him down. Mm -hmm. and. So I become obsessed with this idea of right now in America, this is true, it's actually true in most of the developed world, your zip code is the number one predictor of your future success. So back at Quest, I saw a thousand of my 3,000 employees reminded me of this kid. And I was like, I don't wanna fail again. Because what ended up happening is he, once he got into foster care, they just moved him farther and farther and farther away and I was broke at the time and it was, sure. he was like two hours away. So we end up losing contact. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not okay with that. So I opened what I called Quest University, which of course now becomes Impact Theory University, which we give away to anybody that can't afford it. And it's me just saying, think like this, act like this, and it'll make yeah. your life better. But realizing that unfortunately, the realities of the human brain are such that by the time you're 
a fully baked adult, you can still change. All of us can change. But you can change a lot more when you're 11. Mm -hmm. And so we have now aimed, 85% of what Impact Theory does is aimed at 11 to 15 year olds because I think of this kid every day. And if anybody wants to see what that looks like, I did a video on YouTube called My Master Plan. So if you type in my name plus master plan, you'll see me talking about this kid and all the kids at Quest that I got to know very, very well that the inner city's just demolished. Yeah. And why I fight as hard as I fight to create the things that I'm creating. But the short of it is, there's about five people that I know and love and can think of that have been, some of them have now escaped and that's some of the most gratifying things in yeah. my life, but some of them haven't. And so many of the other people at Quest didn't. So it's just like, holding those names and those people in my mind, staying in contact with them and thinking like, what would I actually need to create to make sure that nobody else has to go through that? So it's the big vision of making sure nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset anchored by these five people that I think about on a daily basis. That's really, really important advice for people to keep in mind is to anchor it and not just be working for some idea, but work for work for a person that anchors and represents that idea. I remember I was recently in this little business mastermind group of people in Austin, part of the community that wanted to get together and post-transaction. And I'm talking about my fit for service fellowship, which is bringing a group of people together, going through initiatory rituals, building a community where people can be vulnerable and support each other. And they were, you know, one of the guys was like, well, why are you doing this anymore? Like the money's the money's inconsequential compared to relative to everything else. Why do you care? Because all of my questions were about that. How do I make this better? How do I, you know, that's really what I was focused on. They're like, what, what, are, you, what are you even worried about? And, was, and I really thought about it. And it's because when I'm there with somebody and I see them and I see the breakthrough happen and I see something transform and I stay in touch with them, you know, we have an app, so I stay in touch with them. I've run into them in different places. A lot of them moved to Austin. I'll see them and I'll know that I actually did something for that person, you know, for Sarah, not for the world, not because not the, even the person with the little thumbnail picture and says, wow, wow, your podcast changed my life. Oh, thank you. It comes automatically. I do feel whatever gratitude I can feel for that moment, but it's hard for me to take it in. But when I know that person and I've been in a sweat lodge with them and I've been in, you know, breath work with them and I've shared my own tears and my own experience with them then it then it becomes meaningful and then i can really care in the way that that provides that solar energy that i that i really crave that fuel to drive me and i think more intentionality even when i'm writing my because i'm writing another book you know and i'm thinking about this is going to be really helpful for everybody who reads it well everybody who reads it is meaningless you know i needed i need to come up with like no it's going to be helpful for this person mm -hmm and all the people like them, but really anchor it. So that's it's very good advice for me to hear, and I'm sure good advice for other people to hear. Yeah, and then the other part of that is, so desire is a process. So people will sort of get that love is a process, right? You have to actually spend time with that person, you go on dates, like there's a reason that those rituals exist because it is a process of doing certain things that make you end up falling in love and, and you, know, you develop a neurochemical reaction. The first time I saw Lisa, my now wife of 19 years, the neurochemical reaction was one of sexual attraction, mm -hmm. right? And now I have that, that's like a note in this now symphony of responses that I get. And understanding that that 
took a high degree of intentionality, even, even just like the sort of blind way that we spend time with those that we love of sharing experiences and life and all of that, that's the process. But when it comes to desire, there's like a really specific process that people can do that will anchor it. So when I was deciding, okay, we're gonna do this thing called impact theory, and now I know these people that I want to like build this for, but that's not enough yet. I have to attach this, like I'm building a studio for these people for this reason. And so it was, whenever I hear somebody say, you're born with a mission in life, I always get my back up at that mm-hmm. because a thousand years ago had Steve Jobs been born, I think he still would have lived an extraordinary life, but it would have looked nothing like it looked now. He wouldn't have been like, I want to create the iPhone, right? It just didn't exist. So we're all a product of our time. And once you realize that, then it's like, well, then if that's true, that Steve Jobs a thousand years ago would have fallen in love with something the way that he fell in love with current technology, then what is that process that anchors it to something? And can I take conscious control of that. And it goes like this. You tell yourself, I'm going to build a studio to help people 11 to 15 to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. Why? Because of this kid that I failed. Now, I had never said to myself, I failed the kid that I mentored before. In fact, my whole story around him was I showed him that somebody loved him. At a time where he was unfortunately being abused at home, He didn't know that anybody loved him. Mm. And so I became that figure in his life. Now, I was too young to really understand it at the time, but like now looking back, I completely understand what that would have been like for him. And so I switched it to saying, as much as I loved him, I did end up failing him in that I did not save him from his zip code. And that became like this really important thing. And the more that I said that to myself, the more that I told other people I wasn't willing to fail more people and that I was gonna build the studio to make sure that I could help people at scale, the more that I then embodied the passion. So I didn't just say it blankly. I was like, you know, really expressing the way that I wanted to feel when I thought about that. And the more that I, so you have this mechanism in your brain that justifies the amplitude of your reaction. So if you react big to something, your brain goes, whoa, I guess this is a big deal. Mm. And so you can actually just layer that on. It's like the universe is listening. That's a really interesting way to think about it, absolutely. And you get this neurological feedback. So the more that I do that and put it out in a big way, actually embody it, it like starts to become real. And so the master plan video that I was talking about, I'd been reinforcing it myself by the time I recorded that, probably for about 18 months, maybe two years. So it completely caught me off guard when I explained it out loud for the first time to like other than just my friends that you know, I'd failed this kid and that I wasn't going to, and I just completely broke down and cried with no layer of performance. Like, I know what it's like to get on stage and like perform and like make sure that people feel your passion. I was fucking caught off guard. It was like really almost awkward how caught off guard I was. And I thought, oh my God, this really works. Like the more I told myself, this is what this is about. This is why I'm doing it. It actually became that. And so you have to anchor on something real. Like that was all there for me and it was all too easy easy to like really buy into, yeah, I really did fail him. Um, but it was a process. And it's so powerful when you realize that you can aim that process at something. Yeah, people think that it's just something that's, it's innate, it's there or it's not, and you have it or you don't, but you've, you've taken something, a kernel of something that was real, and then almost like how, a, how an oyster will make a pearl. It'll yes. take, like there's a grain of sand of your initial desire, but you're wrapping it in whatever pearlescent layer 
over and over and over again so that when you open that oyster anytime, you got a shining, That's glistening so pearl of desire. Yeah, it's super powerful to think about because then we all have these little grains of sand, but what are we going to make a pearl out of? You need the grain of sand. Yeah. But yeah, by the time you're done, it's become this useful thing. It's not always beautiful, but it's mm -hmm. become useful. Sure, sure. Let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about love because you were explaining something. We were just catching up and, you know, you noticed I had some new tattoos on my arm and you went into um, a conversation about one of the challenges with love is there's not enough connective tissue through the rituals and through the shared experiences. And that actually led you to getting your tattoo. So explain the theory and then explain one of your solutions to that theory in getting the tattoo. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up soft. So my adult life has been about learning to toughen up. Uh, I was not a tough kid. I quit playing football because every time they said hike, I knew that I was going to experience some <laughs> level of pain. And so I was like, well, this is dumb. So not realizing that resilience would become the, the most necessary ingredient in my success. So as this is sort of beginning to dawn on me, I uh, read this book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. And in the book, he's talking about how Basically, he's looking at marriage and how many marriages fail and that he thinks part of what's breaking down in society is there's no coming of age ritual. And then marriage rituals have lost their punch. They've become really watered down. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, at this, the time I read it, I'm probably, I don't know, maybe 24 or something like that. So I'm like, the coming of age ritual is, is kind of past, but I could do a ritual, like really make my marriage something meaningful from a ritualistic standpoint. And the cool thing was I married a Greek woman. So we had a traditional Greek wedding. I had to get christened the whole nine, but they're like waving smoke and chanting in ancient Greece and like Greek. And so it, there was this really sort of foreign, um, it felt like a ritual in sure. a way that all the weddings that I had attended before where it's like a pastor who's kind of funny and he's cracking jokes and you're in like just a normal church, which, you know, and the West Coast of America, like the churches aren't, it wasn't even Catholic church. So it was like, I was so used to like an old rec center and it's also where they hold the church ceremony. So it's also <laughs> where the weddings are, you know what I mean? So it was like, and I remember one of my, I think my cousins had their, um, the reception at the, what was known as the Tacoma Sportsman's Club where literally the floor is sawdust. There are animal heads on the walls and like peanut and peanut shells in the ground. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those. Yeah. And so I didn't have a high sense of like weddings were pomp and circumstance and ceremonial. There was none of that in my world. So for me, it was so like, whoa, like what's going on? It feels important. I'm in this old church and because we got married in London in an ancient city and I've got people chanting in an ancient language and I've had to like go to all these lessons to get christened and I mean it's like it's just so surreal and being having something that was more ritualistic was already like I knew that we were moving towards that and so I wanted to go through a ritualistic scarification as a part of this otherworldly experience and so I thought okay what would that look like in a modern context it needs to be something that scares me it needs to be something that's going to hurt and it needs to be something that's permanent. Like those were the, and it's like doing it to yourself is somehow harder than like the tribe is forcing you to do it. <laughs> right. I was like, I'm living in a world where nobody's gonna care <laughs> if I do this or not, but I still, it needs to scare me, it needs to hurt, and it needs to be permanent. 
So I was like, okay, I could get, I could get branded. Maybe I do that. Uh, I could get some sort of like really painful piercing. I don't know if you've ever, I, I used to go to this thing. It's so weird. It doesn't even seem like my personality, but there was this thing called the fetish ball. And I used to go to that. And there was, it just so weirded me out. And they would do these things where they would put rings in their back and then like connect each other. Like rings in their fucking flesh, dude. Mm-hmm. And then they would like do this tug of war and you could see their back pulling. Oh, it's crazy. So I was like, I could do something like that. <laughs> like that fucking scares the life out of me. Yeah. And so I was like. That st- brings new meaning to exchange rings. Yeah, right? At <laughs> a wedding, yeah. So, but I thought, okay, there's one element. I swore I would never get a tattoo. Needles scare the life out of me. And that would allow me to create more meaning. So I could design a tattoo, which would be my promise to my wife. I would have it permanently emblazoned on my body and it would be this constant reminder to never, ever, ever look for the exit. That this is about, I'm all in. I am literally a different man before and after the wedding. Mm -hmm. And so end up designing my tattoo and coming up with basically the four words that really meant something to me and getting them tattooed forever on my body and in Greek so that it has that element of mystique and it hurt and I was scared and didn't want to do it as the time was coming. I'm like, oh my God, like, am I really going to do this? Like, I'm really, I'm at the time was legitimately not quite phobic of needles, but really close to where I had been, um, they weren't drawing blood, but they were injecting. It was called prolotherapy. Doesn't matter. It involved needles, and I almost fainted. Like, that's where I was around needles. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And it really did, like, galvanize. It gave me this, and we treated it as a ritual. You know, we went there, like, made a big deal of it. Like, I'm going to get this tattoo. My wife came with me, and it was like a whole thing. And I remember the whole time that it hurt, I was saying to myself, I'm doing this because my marriage is forever and I will never look for the escape hatch. I will never back out of this. I will do whatever it takes to thrive in this marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that if my wife was abusive or something like that, that I wouldn't divorce, but it's like, it would really have to be like some crazy over the line shit. And dude, that's really come to my rescue. Like there have been times where it gets hard and just knowing that that door was forever shut to me. And so the only thing I had was, well, how do I make this work? Yeah, the only way through was forward. Have you done anything since that's a similar type of ritual that you guys have done? You know, it's almost like the renewal of vows, so to speak, but the renewal of ritual that you've continued through your relationship. You know, that's interesting. And I would be very open to that. Mm -hmm. We haven't largely because originally we were trying to come up with a design where i could add to the tattoo like every year or five years or something and honestly i I would actually still like to do that but we haven't i would also like to do a renewal of vows but my wife doesn't want to for her it's we did it it was perfect it meant everything to me it's never sort of lost its importance and i don't want that to be one of the times that we do this but it still speaks to me. Yeah. If she was into it, I would do it like every five years or something. Um, I think it would be cool and beautiful, but it doesn't resonate with her and I don't feel super strongly about it. Mm-hmm. So. so I got married, we got married in the heat, in the peak of COVID and we just, we wanted to get married and we wanted to just elope and do it. And we felt passionately that we wanted to do it, always knowing that we were gonna do the proper one when we had more time and the world was more open and everybody could travel and 
So we have that scheduled now coming up and we're now designing, all right, what do we want this to look like? And I've always believed that we should take every different thing that exists and make sure that it has the meaning we want. All right, if, if you think it's a funeral and you're supposed to wear black and sit around the thing and throw a little dirt on it, well, is that meaningful to you? Is that honoring mm-hmm. you know, what you would want to honor this person with and what they would want you know, to be honored by you by? Like, I think we should all take a fresh look at everything. And I think this is very important. Every holiday, Valentine's Day, Halloween, don't just go with what's been done. Think about it. Like, what do you want it to be? What do you want Christmas to be? What do you want Thanksgiving to be? What do you want? And certainly your wedding or your birthday or whatever it is. So this is the first opportunity to really, in a meaningful way, you know, put my money where my mouth is, really back up what we're saying. And my wife's fully on board. So we're now in the process of, all right, how do we envision something that is the most meaningful to us? And we had a quick little, it was actually last night, and we were talking about, because eventually it will go into a kind of dance party situation Mm -hmm. after it's all done. And she was like, well, maybe this DJ because of some of the crowd. And I was like, no, 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 stop. This is a dangerous place we're going to. We throw the party because it's the music we want to listen to. This is our ritual. This is not for everybody else. We're inviting them. We want them to be there. But... This is a dangerous, slippery slope the moment we start making decisions based on what other people want. We have the DJ that we want there. And if it's hardcore trap music the whole time <laughs> and everybody's like, what the hell? Like, so be it. They're mm-hmm. at our wedding. You know, it's, that's their experience that yeah. they're signing up for. They're here there to experience us in our fullness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that was, so I guess that's as far as we've gotten so far as principle number one, this is for us. You know, this is for us in all choices that we make and you know it will unfold as it unfolds i'll be of course sure to share the story but Mm. i love this idea of reclaiming our myths and our rituals and our holidays and our celebrations like you rite of passage was something that i had missed but i found it in my own way in my own vision quest which i think i talked about on your show when i was on i was very fortunate i stumbled into that it was a little past the age of a normal rite of passage but i was still 18 and i was powerful And so all of these things coming back in, along with the mindset, along with so many other, you know, information and access to the right foods, and there's so much that the world needs Mm. right now. And I think this is one of the important pieces is like we need to bring meaningful ritual back in where it's not just the husk, but the kernel is there, you know, not just the empty paper wrapping around what used to be the candy of some you know intense initiatory experience or a divine revelatory experience Mm. we don't just want the wrapper we need the we need the meat we need the candy no doubt do you know michael easter no i don't oh man i think you'd love him super interesting dude wrote a book called the comfort crisis Mm. and it is all about basically you know lives have gotten so easy there's no coming of age rituals there's none of this hard stuff and I forget which warrior tribe he was talking about, but at whatever age, 15, 16, something like that, they give him a spear and tell them, you have to go kill a lion. Masai. Masai, yes, thank you. So you know the ritual mm-hmm. well. And I just thought, that's some real shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they have like the whole phrase that many many a, a promising warrior have been lost to the lions or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like motherfuckers actually get eaten. <laughs> like, yeah. that's when you know, like this is for real. And when you realize that, This was stuff that started when I need to know 
that the people to my right and left can help protect me in this crazy dangerous environment. And so while I admittedly would not do a ritual myself to put me in that kind of peril, nor would I send my kids, if I had them, into that kind of peril, it's powerful. Like doing things that are actually that level of hard, where it's like a 50-50 shot that you make it. Mm-hmm. He talks about that in the book. There's a Masagi, I think. There is, there's a guy that he um, went traveling with, and this guy has this whole notion of the Mas- Masagi, Muskogee, something like that. I'm close. And uh, that it, it should be something that's hard enough that you're not, it really is a 50-50 shot that you do it. But that whole thing is, rule number two is don't die. So Yeah, yeah for sure. I think uh, when you look at that, you know, I have, I have a men's group that I'm part of and a lot of high achievers and really exceptional individuals in this group. And one of them keeps pushing, because we, we try to bring some ritual into our, into our thing. He keeps pushing this Navy SEAL practice where you put on a weight belt and hold a weight and you have like a resuscitation team above the pool, but you walk on the bottom of the pool until you pass out. And I'm oh. like, that's called drowning, man. Like, I don't know what, I, I don't know what you want. You want this? He's like, keeps looking at me because he knows that I'm into this stuff. I'm like, it's drowning. And he's like, no, no, actually like the autonomic nervous system knows and you don't actually suck in air for a good minute after. I'm like, man, like I just start sweating. I'm like, yeah. I don't, I, that might be too far for me. But the idea of it, I see why it's so compelling, and I see why in some elite, you know, special forces training, they've offered this because the person that you know yourself to be on the other side of that is not only what other people know you to be, but you know about you. Like if you went out and faced the jaws of the lion, or you walked on that pool without scrambling up to the mm. surface to breathe, like you know something about yourself. You're like, <sighs> I so looked hardcore. death in the eye, and I was, and I didn't flinch. And it, that, that, no, that gnosis of your own power, mm. that's strong. And I've done a lot of intense things, and, but, you know, it, and that's really served me well. But there's always that, this thing that's like looming out, like my buddy suggests, and I'm like, God, it scares the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah that, that, one is, uh, that one is, I think, a little hardcore for me. Where it's like, <laughs> it's the too odds, hardcore for me. Maybe most people's autonomic nervous system, it'll <laughs> yeah, suck in exactly. water for a minute, but like, what exactly. if I'm the one guy? Oh, it's rare, but it does happen. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. This is, uh, you've had the unique opportunity to converse with some of the most amazing people in the whole world. Is it difficult, you find, to, do you feel like it's accretive? I was talking to Matthew Hussey about this, and he was saying, it's almost overwhelming the amount of information that's available mm-hmm. and accessible to us. And he was wondering if perhaps keeping things a little more narrow serves you better because you can get lost in all of these different rabbit holes of information and practices. And I tend to think that cumulatively it is all helpful and that we're such a multi-dimensional complex being that finding, exploring all these pathways is what I'm deeply driven to. Have you thought about that at all? Is it, or do you really feel like, look, the more information we can get from the more disparate sources, the better? So I think it, you have to be really thoughtful about this. So one, I have, if people go back and watch my show from the beginning to now, they'll see that the guest selection has changed like pretty dramatically. And it's a little heartbreaking because there are some people that I had on the show and I love them so much and I would love to have them back if it were not for the fact that I realize 
I can only have guests on where I would have done that research anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, the way that I think about it is 80% of my time I spend going deep on a very limited set of topics. 20% of my time I spend going very broad, but still on a relatively limited number of topics. But you know, for most people, it's you know, pretty buckshot. The reason that I think it's important to do both, one, the success of my life has come from going deep, far right. more than it has from going broad. But I am shocked at how often going broad ends up triggering something that ends up then serving me in this area that I'm going deep, especially because I'm in storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll come across some, like for instance, when I read um, Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, never in a million years did I think I would end up writing a story set in like a dystopian future that was essentially about Nelson Mandela. And I just read it because it's like, homeboy went to prison for 27 years and didn't come out bitter. Like, how the fuck right. do you pull that off? Right. And so that sucked me in. But then the, the idea of what I called the third way, I don't think he ever called that. Trust me, I'm not trying to take credit for anything that amazing human being ever thought or did. Um, but I walked away from it with this idea of, okay, you've, you've been oppressed. You can come out and be the oppressor. You can come out and remain oppressed. Or you can find a third way of unity. And that idea just was so profound to me. And then it's like, Somebody, long story about how the comic comes into being and how I end up writing the story, but in real time in that moment, I had to pitch an idea. Boom, that idea comes to my mind. When I read it, I certainly didn't think this is gonna become a story. So I find that going broad will serve you, but you don't wanna just always go broad. Yeah, I think that's really good pragmatic wisdom because I can find myself oftentimes going just 10 feet deep on a million different things. You know, I think there's an old metaphor that says you don't strike oil building you know making a hundred wells that go 10 feet deep you strike oil digging one well that goes a hundred feet deep right right? like and that's definitely the case for the most part but nonetheless exploring all of these little different test wells to see and then but then when you find something that's interesting having the discretion to push everything else to the side and say all right I'm gonna go in here until I find the gold, until I find that thing that I've really been looking for. It seems like the most practical way to go about it because it is an absolute flood of information that's mm. out there and, and getting a cursory view of everything and then taking the time to really dive deep is pretty essential. And then where things really get interesting, so you look at the people that have won Nobel Prizes, it's almost always an area of overlap where like yeah. biology and chemistry overlap. So. I have accidentally, I wish I could say that this was something smart that I did, but I've accidentally reinvented myself every 10 years. So first I went to film school, thought that was gonna be my entire life. Then I got into technology, then I got into nutrition and manufacturing, and then I got into an actual media company. And so each time I've had to completely build a new knowledge base. And by doing that, like one of the ways that I immediately understood that the print comic book industry is dead is because I came from the world of nutrition. We had 8,000 points of distribution. I mean, something stupid like that in 145 countries. I knew what flavor of bar was selling in what store, where we were, in what aisle, like where are we on the shelf? Like I had so much data. Go over to comic books and all of a sudden you realize you don't even know what sells. All you know is what the distributor, because there's only one, pulls into their system, that's it, you're blind. 
as soon as I'm in there, I'm like, well, this is never going to work because mm -hmm. nobody knows how to get their sales up because they don't know what's selling. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is dumb. Left that, immediately went to digital. Now, when we first made that switch, we looked crazy because nobody, it was like, only 15% of comics are sold digitally. Why would you ever go 100%? And it's like, because you guys all have a Western comic mentality, nobody even realizes this thing called Webtoon exists. Webtoon is doing the same number of views on Webtoon as on YouTube all across Asia. The US shows the same um, pattern of adoption, but we're 10 years behind. Hmm. So because they're all focused on that and don't realize it's broken because it's the only industry they've ever known, they didn't have the same reaction I had, which is you can't build a business on this, which yeah. I never would have known had I not spent a decade in nutrition. Right. It's what Robert Greene in the book Mastery calls the Da Vinci effect. You know, Interesting. I read that book. I don't Leonardo that book. da Vinci was, he was a master sculptor. He was mm. an engineer. He was a biologist, did autopsies. He did all of these different things. And then when, so when he paints the Mona Lisa, it's with the information of a lot of the things that he has so or when crazy. he designs all, all of his inventions and his sketches, he was bringing a lot of things together. And, and I absolutely agree with you. And that's the advice I give. Find the two things or three things that you're passionate about. Go deep in both of those and see where they meet each other for the overlap. And, you know, that's a big area of success. You know, for me, I can say the same thing. These disparate fields of interest come together. And I think they're still, they're still coming. Some are still coming together as I reach depth where I'm actually getting to a place of significance because you have to reach that place of significance. You can't be really shallow and then have a very shallow overlap. You have to be deep enough in enough things that the overlap is in the depth of significance. And then from there, you can birth something even, you know, really special because it's unique. No doubt. Yeah. And when you realize just how young you are, and that it's like, you've got this many areas of overlapping expertise. Imagine what it's gonna be like when you're twice as old as you are now. And that to me is a key thing for, that I want everybody to understand, but certainly young people, is that, dude, you, 80 years is a long ass time. And then if you can push it, and if you're young now, odds are that if you live a healthy lifestyle, you're gonna live even longer than that. Like you've got a lot of time to become a master of some pretty insane stuff. Yeah. And part of what's like kept me going is that I'm so excited by learning new things. And the number of people that look at a new technology or whatever and are like, oh my God, like I'm exhausted. I don't want to learn a new thing. It's like, dude, you're going to get passed by. <laughs> and it's like, it's the classic way that humans go around. You hit somewhere around sort of late 30s, early 40s where you're just like, I, I just want to leverage what I already know, man. I don't want to go learn a new thing. Mm. And that, that makes me sad more than most things. Like learning in and of itself is joyful. So throw yourself into an adventure, throw yourself into a challenge, throw yourself into uncomfortable, unknown, uncharted waters and rely on yourself to swim your way out, you know, no figure doubt. it out. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, to wrap this up, if you were going to, you know, give the listeners just some advice from you, just channeling like, all right, obviously we've given a lot, but any final words of advice or wisdom that, that you would like to leave people? You are having a biological experience. So if I have one mission, my whole thing around making sure that you encounter a growth mindset is really about getting people to understand you're having a biological experience. So what do I mean by that? Your brain has been formed by millions of years of evolution. You probably feel like you're above that. But in reality, you are in the grips of that biology. 
And once you understand that you don't have to be a slave to your emotions, that you can actually, there are what I call physiological hooks into changing your emotional state. And once you take control of that, realize that you can orchestrate it, do things like build desire because it's a process. And so you can, like if you're worried that there's nothing I'm passionate about in life and you know everything just feels like milk toast for me, like it's okay mm. for you, Tom, because you have a passion. Recognizing that, oh, okay, this is biology. I can learn something new because of something called brain plasticity. I love this thing because of that mechanism of desire has been built up. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that this is all nature going, I wanna make sure that you live long enough to have kids that have kids. So it's like every impulse, desire, want, everything that you have is fucking nature slamming you in the back to get you to do that stuff. Now, you don't live in that same environment anymore. So some of these impulses don't make sense. Take overeating. Made sense when food was hard to find. Sure. Not so much when your pantry is stocked full. Um, understanding that love, going back to that, that in the beginning, nature wants to make sure you're having some sex and you're having <laughs> babies. So that initial desire is one, it's awesome. Two, it's all consuming. It's all about that sexual energy. But then nature changes its mind after that. And for the guy, it wants to make sure that you move on and go have more kids and spread your seed as far as you can. And if you don't see that coming, that's gonna catch you off guard. So I could go literally a whole nother show, just sure. all the ways that your biology is fucking with you. But once people realize, okay, I'm having a biological experience that I can take control of, I don't have to be a servant to my emotions. I can have an agenda, leverage my biology to get the pleasure that I want, point, pointing me in the right direction, use the pain to move away from things that don't make sense, and I don't have to live by the law of accident. Getting people to understand that and take control of that process is my everything. That's my magnum opus. That's beautiful. And I would just add that if, you, when you figure this out, let's say you heard this and something clicks, don't go back and judge yourself for not living that way in the past. You didn't have the information before. Like, and that's something that I think people resist these messages of radical self-sovereignty and responsibility because it's their own judge judging what they've done in the past as if they were supposed to have known that already and supposed to have done something different. Past is gone. Don't worry about it. It's all good. You did your best, I promise, because you did it. But like now, right now, you can make a different choice you know, and follow everything that you said and practice these things, build your own desire, be aware of your biology and change it. You know, no like doubt. this is possible. Preach. Thank you, brother. This was amazing, Thank man. You, it's man. so it good to so see you, too. so much fun. Same. Yeah. A lot of fun. Obviously, Impact Theory, people can find you. Yep. Unbelievable show. And where else? Anything else that you want to point people to? At Tom Bilyeu. Uh, if you want to know what I'm doing on the technological front with, like, NFTs and all of that, Twitter. Um, Instagram is the sort of broadest where I cover, like, a lot of mindset and stuff like that. And then YouTube is the shows. Beautiful. That's it. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Much love. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I love you and I'll see you next week.